11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, we talk about Starling's latest releases with Megan Kaywood. FCA make a pact with the CFTC resulting in transatlantic fist bumps and we discuss conservative coin versus Steven Seagal's Bitcoin. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Ross Gur. Ross Gallagher, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. How are you? I am hanging on by a thread, so not laughing from the conversation we had before the podcast. But that uh, is not for the listeners, that's for another day. Um, Enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. We're joined by the wonderful Megan Kaywood, who's Chief Platform Officer at Starling. Megan, how are you? Yeah, doing well. Good to have you. And Edward Burks, who's Director of Banking, Fintech and Ecosystem at Zero. Greedy job title, is it? Absolutely. Gotta have more. Um, Job titles like Pokemon. Um, Let's get started with this week's news. First story in the news. Well, we've got two stories, and handy that we have Megan right here because they're both Starling stories. So let's barrel through these. Um, Starling's new addition to their marketplaces uh, from City AM, submitted to FinTech Insider News by Val Christensen. Shout out, Val. Um, Starling Bank announces partnerships with a mortgage broker, investment, and pension firms, and an insurer in the open banking push. So, four new partners Pension B, Wealth Simple, Habito, and Casco. Uh, first out of 25 partnership and working with charity apps as well sustainably and donate your change um i guess this marketplace banking thing and open banking is really here megan yeah definitely so last year we saw starling push forward their open banking api so the kind of full set of open apis and start to do integrations with people like moneybox and yo-yo wallet and things like that where they were integrating starling into their app um and so that was nice in terms of bringing these connected services and this vision of open banking to life um but the next stage of that for us was always wanting to pull these third-party applications, various products and services into Starling as well. Um, And that's really with the vision of we want to focus on making the current account as awesome as possible, solving, you know, the fundamental problems around just making it easy to set up a bank account, make it easy to make payments, Um, but also the more complex problems around finding other financial products you need. And so the marketplace is how we do that. So that's where this is really coming through. that was kind of the vision, wasn't it? That marketplace would become a thing. It's nice to see it becoming live. I mean, Ross, you spend half your life researching what's happening in this space. Do, Do we think that this is possible for the bigger banks as well, or is this just going to be something we see with the challenges? I think it is possible for the bigger banks. You know, we've seen HSBC roll out their beta app, and um, that's gaining some traction. I think what's super cool is that, as expected, I think the fintech guys are kind of seeing open banking as an opportunity. I think we're starting to see a real ramping up now of, like, the fintechs kind of positioning themselves as this kind of financial center where you can like control your whole life. So you can kind of manage, what have we said, like mortgage, pension, investments, insurance from Starling now under one central UI, mm-hmm. um, as you know, on top of your day-to-day banking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think as expected, I think we're going to see more of this from the fintechs in particular. And some, uh, we've had Pension B on the show before and, and we have um, kind of uh, talked to a lot of these companies, but Habito, a really interesting one. Could you mind just give me two minutes on what Habito is for, for people who aren't familiar Absolutely. with it? So it's like a digital um, kind of mortgage broker. Um, I guess mortgage being a typically more complex financial product, I think there's there's a, a layer of intimidation over that, I think, for, for most customers. So they sort of strip that back. They give you this um, super engaging um, digital UI. They ask super easy questions. They collect the information like that. Um, but it's, it could almost, almost, dare I say it, be called a chatbot. But it's not, right? It's, but it's this conversational, well, it's like text-based, so, driven kind of back and Exactly. Forth. It's like a chat interface. And what's super interesting about that is it feels personalized, mm-hmm. right? Um, they ask the questions in a way that's like disarming. It's not intimidating. Um, they build your profile right in front of your eyes so you can see the story build as you answer these questions. And based on that, which is super, super cool, they hand you off to a qualified person who will then take you forward and match you to a mortgage product. See, this is why I really enjoy having Ross around scary knowledge of fin- what fintech apps can do. So, Edward, like, uh, obviously with Zero, you sit uh, quite a lot for the accountants You for, and for a small business. You sit between the bank account and the accountant or the business itself. You're in that gap. So the development of things like this must be really promising for, for where Zero sits. Yeah, hey, so Megan was kind enough to invite me to the Starling Marketplace launch. And so, you know, we're pretty familiar with it. Um, 
we run our own marketplace. So we have 600 apps that uh, ride against zero that help small businesses uh, either run restaurants and farms and dentistry or their kind of horizontal apps for reporting and forecasting. Um, and we know that that ultimately makes our proposition richer and stickier. So I think it makes a huge amount of sense for um, banks like Starling to be introducing that. Um, and actually what's great is I think it gets you considered across a greater breadth of, of applications and requirements, right, when, when people find their way to you. I should tell you, Megan, that this morning I was with a, a group of accountants talking about account opening and whether the challenger experience was kind of finding traction with uh, small businesses. And somebody talked specifically about how slick it was to open a bank account with Sterling. So, so look, it's happening. I think that, 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 that visibility is really happening. So, And there's relevant. another feature there, um, this one directly from starlingbank.com but submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fred P, launching payments requests from non-users. So this is a bit like Monzo have Monzo.me, and I think Square had a, a, an equivalent version for quite a while. So this is almost like your specific uh, URL um, to allow people to make IOUs. So then I'd be able to say, like, um, hey, here's starlingbank.com forward slash SYTaylor, which would be like the Twitter handle or whatever your username is, and then somebody could pay me directly to that pretty easily yeah exactly what does that experience look like yeah so the what it is is like this payments like you were saying a number of different people have tried to tackle it and it's because payments is the fundamental thing that people need to do it's a fundamental action um so for us we want to make it really easy for users to do that so right now if you're a starling user you just go into the app you click settle up you can um put forward the request and right now it'll go through a messaging service like whatsapp um the next thing that we're going to be doing is so that if you're a starling user making a request to another starling user you can just import your contact um, and easily make those requests and payments all from within the Starling app. But basically, it's just a really easy way to request and make payments between friends. Which you've had that, I'm sure we've all had that thing before where like just getting money off people if you've organized a trip somewhere or getting charity payments in for a thing or all of the, they're just all a bit awkward as experiences, aren't they, Ross? Agreed. And I think for me, when I thought about this initially as a use case, I struggled to see it from the perspective of someone who was requesting payments. But I think coming out of that, if you're all already in the conversation like oh i i do owe you 10 pounds for lunch or whatever that is mm -hmm. at that point it becomes super useful because the alternative is oh can you please send me over your bank details and then you know i have to go and mm -hmm. get those off my bank card and, and shoot them over and they may or may not be right mm -hmm. um so i think you know instead if i can just send you a link and you can mm -hmm. use that to pay and um we've got a research team that was super excited about this mm -hmm. feature um especially to get it into our pulse platform and it's um something that I've looked at and it's awesome as you said design wise really really nice and what I really liked was if you don't have a styling account you can just use the debit card to yeah yeah, yeah um, exactly so is there something broader going on here are we seeing that propositions are now coming out because we had the phase of like hey here's all the challenger banks will they get a banking license and we've kind of gone from that to they've got a banking license will they get customers and will they ever be able to roll out features are we are we moving beyond that Edward do you think so, yeah, I mean, absolutely, again, the fact that we're seeing uh, residents of, of brands like Tide and Starling with small businesses, that's that's real progress. Just six months ago, that, that was not necessarily the case. And actually, talking about payments, do you guys you guys know CirclePay, right? And, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, you Jeremy talked about them on, on, the, on, 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 on the show. Um, I have two teenage sons, and uh, I, I guess you'll be aware of the fact that a bit like kind of Uber free rides, those guys pay a bounty when you when you refer somebody um, and just to see the virality with which that's going around in universities and sixth forms is is kind of crazy right that's it's a really interesting uh, way that, that 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 they're driving adoption um, and, and absolutely the way that the adoption I think is transforming is from this need to recognize the brand and the trust and the, and the buildings um, actually to it just being a great apps and you, you, a great app and your friends are using it um, I think we're absolutely seeing that not only in in retail but actually coming through into SMB as well so there's um, fintech building propositions challenger banks building propositions i think the open banking question um was you know that remains to be answered is will we see these propositions coming from the larger organizations um i, I hope we do i mean yolt from ing is an interesting example where an organization can spin something out and build a new proposition to serve a new customer segment ross yeah it is i i mean i think ultimately it's gonna boil down to a point around like design and ui because it's I'm, experience yeah but if i'm gonna if i am gonna have it goes back to what i said about a sort of financial control center if i'm just gonna have a financial control center i'm gonna want to use 
the one that is the easiest to use, that's the nicest to use and, and, and does what I want it to do. Yolt is super nice because it gives me a nice graphic that tells me when payday is, how far away that is. It gives me my safe to spend and it gives me everything that I need in but that can sense. This, can this not be done? So First Direct did a beta app um, that was doing a similar sort of thing. Can uh, Lloyd's, when they talked about spending three billion on digital transformation because they wanted to excite a load of vendors i don't know why they they announced the amount they're going to spend um they they um they when they announced that their strategy documents that came out with it were really interesting they were talking about no actually we think people will trust the lloyd's brand and they want to aggregate within the brand they know and trust so these propositions might be coming i think they will inevitably be coming Definitely. Um, and it goes back to what we, you know, I mean, HSBC has launched their beta app. Lloyd's, the, you know, they're, they're making all the right noises. Um, for me, a little bit, they're playing catch up. Um, again, I do think the fintechs have just stolen a march in terms of creating that financial control center. I think where we've seen the greatest variation is around the entry points or the sort of product strategy. So um, Monzo initially sort of launched with a prepaid card. Starling, of course, went for the full current account. We've seen Tandem now this week have announced the launch of their um, cashback credit card that char- doesn't charge fees overseas and obviously integrates with their pfm app, and Atom so it's, went more lending based right and, exactly but it's the i think the the tandem play is kind of you know look um i guess come for the credit card stay for the pfm and they've announced <laughs> they're going to kind of launch um come, launch savings accounts going come for forward brunch and, and stay for the booze i like the sound exactly of that. Um, exactly so um next story in this kind of sequence is Monzo have teamed up with Moneybox using their open banking API. So we've talked about them integrating with Emma um, and a few other things. This was from City AM submitted to Fintech Insider News by uh, Emika Onwu. Um, Monzo users can invest cash with Moneybox uh, thanks to open banking. So it lets you invest your cash by rounding up purchases to the nearest pound and when users make that purchase the rest of the cash up to the nearest pound is taken um, and invested in three kinds of different tracker funds this to me just feels like all right great that it's integrated but surely this is a feature not a business in terms of money box right surely the the kind of the challenger banks could build that themselves in no time at all or even the bigger banks could build this well, I guess the bigger banks might have legacy issue systems, but... Well, it's funny. It was actually... System issues. Yeah. After Starling launched, when we launched our open API in like April of last year, the first integration we had was Moneybox. It's the yep. same kind of thing. But part of the reason why is there's just so much demand from customers wanting to be able to easily connect these various services. And I think that's what we see from across the market of the consumer expectations are just so much greater than what the banks were currently offering. And I think for Monzo, they had so many people wanting to be able to integrate Moneybox. And Monzo said they had an API. And so they're like, why can't... Moneybox integrate it and they're like well you can't actually build public apps on it so it was only now that that was possible so I think there was like a lot of consumer demand and a lot of frustration from people so expecting that to be there you're looking at platforms you're looking at business models day to day how does how do you see those partnerships evolving to be win-wins right because I see uh, the likes of these these small apps with single features having kind of precarious positions I mean I guess if they're selling a tracker fund they've got a business model it's like sell a bunch of funds and, and make a share on that right but like are you always looking for those win-wins and are they are you looking for them to benefit and and how what what do you think about when you're going into a partnership like that there's multiple types of partnerships we have so the money box partnership we have that's actually what we would call a category three integration that's where they've only integrated starlings api and the reason why they're doing that is because it improves their product experience so money box is an app where as you're spending it's rounding up each transaction to invest into an isa so it makes sense that you'd have the bank's real-time transaction api so that you're not rounding up in a chunk at the end of the week the value is it's rounding up literally as you spend so it's kind of increasing their usp um or for Yo-Yo Wallet, which is another one of ours, they had their own standalone app, but in order to like collect the loyalty points, you actually had to scan a QR code. But with integrating Starling's API, you just spend on your Starling card and it automatically happens. On the other hand, there are those who want to actually be integrated into the Starling app, and that's because it's a customer acquisition channel and it gives customers a better and different way to manage their entire ecosystem of finances. So splitting those apart, yeah, I can go into the Starling app itself and I discover a thing, or I have a thing and it just happens to work yeah. because I'm a customer of new bank or, or, or uh, you know, it's kind of one of the uh, other banks as well. I mean, there's nothing stopping the larger banks from doing this stuff apart from maybe um, kind of can they integrate it to their systems? Do they have real-time data available from the card networks? That sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we've probably seen um, Monzo fall slightly behind the rest of the fintech pack when it comes to partnerships. I think that's because they've been focusing on building out their current account. Um, so to me, you know, Megan, I think this makes sense as a partnership, and I, I only expect to see more from Monzo in this space moving forward. 
Well, I've got to do the plug. Or do you want to do it? I'll do it. I'll take it. So, um, and I did mention Pulse as well. So, yeah, um, yeah, double plug. Yeah, I know. Pulse um, is our competitor insights platform, I guess, I think. Um, Netflix for fintech. Um, Ooh, yeah. see behind the login screen, man. Honestly, see behind the login screen. Um, yeah, for anyone who wants to find out more, it's um, 11fspulse.com. That's what it's about. All right, um, probably one of the most compelling, um, most discussed stories we had on fintechinsidernews.com coming up. Um, there's an interview the CEO of Revolut did with uh, Kadim Shuba, who's uh, been on the show a number of times, uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Bob McLean. Revolut's Nikolai Storonsky on long hours and high staff turnover a seemingly every interview with him uh, he's got a lot of people talking there's little room for work-life balance in a fast-growing startup he says claims that he's never come across a burnt-out employee uh, even though they have high turnover um, of staff and pledges to pay for a two-week holiday for any of his staff who feel overwhelmed by the demands of the job he uh, says he's run into problems selecting people to fill senior roles at Revolut, funnily enough. Um, and these difficulties were evident last year as the company lost a chief operating officer, a head of risk, a vice president of corporate services, a head of banking and payments. Uh, the latter left just after joining. Do you think um, this is growing pains for a company? Uh, is this going to affect their success? I mean, Edward, you're part of a startup that's had to grow and scale in the, the time you've been there. Is this just really bad optics and is he being naive or is there something going on culturally here? So I think if you look at where he's come from, there are some clues to, I guess, why his culture is the way it is. So he's come up through uh, Lehman and Credit Suisse. He's got a trading background and I think that probably informs some of what you're seeing. Um you know, I was I was on a, a fintech panel uh, before Christmas uh, talking about how how fintechs manage capital and, and spend on the right things. And one of the questions was, how do we attract talent? Do we need amazing offices and slides in the offices and all this kind of thing? Um, and, and I think my answer to that is that if you are doing something with purpose, if you're building great teams and people believe in what you're doing, they will come, right? Um, and I've been in, in environments where actually I've been working weekends and working long hours. And if it's what you want to do, I dare say it's frankly what some of you guys at 11FS are doing right now. If it's what you want to do and you're enjoying it, I think it's fine. So I think it's very, very easy to kind of be, uh, you know, to, to, to cry foul here and to um, talk about how, how this is just the wrong place to be for a business. But I suspect they are attracting a lot of people who get a huge buzz out of being part of what they're building some very, very like quickly. It, some people don't, and it's about balance. But Megan, you also work at a startup, right? You've probably done a fair share of long hours. What are your reflections on this story? Yeah, I, I mean, I've known a few people who previously worked at Revolut, and they don't speak wildly highly of the that aspect of the culture. But to be fair, I had a few friends who used to work at Tesla back in the day and SpaceX, or who, who currently do. Um, and Elon is very open about having this philosophy of like being very happy to just totally burn out employees and then hire in a whole new wave. Personally, I think that there's, um, there's uh, something to be said for balance, that you don't have to work really crazy hours to be productive. Um, I think some people work really well in concentrated periods. Um, but don't need to work 100-hour weeks to be fully productive, and that actually can have a diminishing return. So I don't necessarily agree with his philosophy, but I can see where he's coming from, and other people have made it work. So it just depends on the person, I think. Yeah, I think we've touched on it as well. I think it appeals to a certain type of person, um, and I think that type of person does get a rush from it or a kick from it, and and, and that that becomes kind of self-fulfilling and you, you keep going along with that. Um, you know, Simon, to your point, this is nothing new, right? Like we knew this was the case. You said it before. Um, I think there's a couple of issues at play. Um, you know, I think with the senior management that he's lost, that seems to be something around micromanagement. You know, these guys don't want to be micromanaged. I think what really spoke to me about this was when he sort of said and then reiterated that he's never seen a burned out employee. Yeah. That to me is <laughs> that speaks to like a cultural issue, because if I'm a, an employee that works at Revolut, am I now going to feel comfortable going to him and saying, actually, I'm really struggling with the demands of the can job? Can I have my two week holiday, please? Well, I'd be queuing up. Well, and so there's something about having people in a company that are not like you that can do the things you can't do. And, and, and that's kind of a critical thing, whereas actually he seems to be only looking to hire people that are like him. And, and look, Revolut have got results. Maybe that works for him. But actually, is that the way to build a sustainable business over the longer term? Or is that going to get you results and burn people out? There's a there's a really interesting question there. And then um, the, the kind of the Travis Kalanick Uber example is like, great, you rushed and you got a lot of results, but ultimately you pay a very high price 
price for it. Now, he sits on a bit of money, so I'm sure he doesn't feel too bad. But actually, he was also publicly humiliated and, and is now a pariah to a large part of communities uh, for very good reason. I mean, that culture was toxic, and I don't think anybody could, could endorse that. And But even, you know, we, the things we've seen with Waymo recently and that sort of stuff, I think we've pretty much, like, discounted the the kind of move fast and break things motto. Uh, well, there's a point at which you have to mature that. Maybe that works for the first couple of people who have that motivation and who have equity and who think that way. But to think everybody is the same as you is a cognitive bias that it takes some time to overcome. You, you would hope, you'd hope with all the publicity uh, now that uh, has very much exposed the, the work culture there, anybody who joins should be a consenting adult and uh, should kind of know what they're getting into, right? Well, I think that that's, that's what they have to be because I come back to the fact that the Revolut ad features like almost as quick as Starling are at the moment. <laughs> they, they're, they're gunning through them. Um, their app is well-downloaded and well-liked for, for what it does and they're, they're doing a lot of things. So they're getting results, but I think how they're going about doing it could lose some customers in the long term um, because PR nightmares are fine in the fintech bubble but actually once you're mass market a PR nightmare can really affect you you just have to look at um, kind of the likes of Uber for others and like why not come out and admit, hey, look, I'm the workaholic here, but um, my ego might have gotten the best of me in the past. I'm learning some stuff. We're proud of what the company's done in a short space of time. Growing a company isn't easy. We've got a lot to learn. Uh, and I think it was a missed opportunity to say those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense that he's the kind of guy who's going to climb down. Um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and that may be a flaw. It may be exactly what's driving Revolut forward in it terms of getting the results that, um, that they're getting i wonder megan do you think there's something you know is there a more defined sort of sense around first mover advantage in the fintech space i mean we we know that people typically don't tend to switch providers all that often so maybe if you've got one fintech provider you, you um, tend you don't tend to actually i don't agree with that people mm. when they reference low switching rates they mean between traditional banks um, but now with current account switching service and when it's really easy to move between apps you actually do see higher switching rates so i think the that percentage is a bit antiquated um but i think similarly now what we're seeing is that there's a lot of different challengers who are coming up looking to solve problems in particular ways. Um, and having a first mover advantage can give you certain benefits around building brand awareness earlier, but at the same time, from a challenger bank perspective, it meant they all had to build on top of someone like Wirecard. And so all of a sudden, they have these really high fees. And so all of a sudden, they have to introduce fees. Whereas with Starling, thankfully, we didn't have those fees from being based off of top of someone else's system. And then we have payment services and net interest from like lending and deposits. So there's certain advantages and trade-offs. There's not one right answer, I'd, I'd say. And that's kind of the key isn't it there are there are advantages and trade-offs to each approach and whilst what revolut might not be something that for you know, that kind of interview might not be something i do can you argue with a million customers and and moving the way they have and some of the way that well, some of them use but okay so they say one million users but they don't actually say the amount of deposits the active users i have a revolut card but i haven't used it in years am i considered in that customer number whereas if you're a full current account and people are using you and having your salary deposited and that's a very different conversation I think they're yeah. claiming six hundred thousand active users kind of in in, in you know kind like of monthly a monthly usage so uh, you know which is which is pretty good i guess one aspect of of this is, uh, you know, even though they are dealing digitally with their clients, at what point does the company culture kind of get exposed to clients, right, in the way that they deal with people? Right. So, uh, I mean, ideally, you have a real authenticity in your vision, which informs your culture, the way you deal with your clients. Um, and actually, you know, if, if people are regarding uh, the culture is a little toxic, perhaps. It's difficult to keep that from your clients. Especially if you're a challenger brand, right? And especially if you're taking on the big organizations, which are considered maybe not um, always always 100% from a brand and marketing perspective. And well, to that perspective, like at each company I've ever worked for, it does seem like executive hiring can be challenging, but the turnover from like just a, 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 an employee level um, I've never seen be quite that high from what the the rates that they're reporting. So yeah, a small growing company will turn people over. I mean, we've unfortunately, or maybe unfortunately, had had people turn over at eleven FS, and uh, that's always a hard thing to do. But hopefully, it's the right thing for everybody involved. Um, whereas actually, when it's statistically more frequent than you might expect, or less frequent than you might expect, you'd worry on both sides. Like you do need some, um, and actually, if you've got none at all, that's worrying. But if you've got too much, that's worrying. It's you're always looking for that uh, right amount. Um, but speaking of uh, of 
people that might keep an eye on this sort of behaviour, there's the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, and the um, Commodities Future Trading Commission, the CFTC um, from from the United States, um, have signed a fintech pact, uh, which sounds like, you know, I, I imagine the fist bumping over the Atlantic somewhere. The, <laughs> that could have been pretty fun. Special relationship. Yeah, that that is a special fist bump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this one comes from Finextra, and it was submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Emeka Onwu, who is prolific this week. Um, so the Financial Conduct Authority and the CFTC have signed an, arra- an arrangement that commits the regulators to collaborating and supporting innovative firms through each other's fintech initiatives. So there's Lab, CFTC and FCA innovate. Um, And the FCA CEO came out and said, international borders shouldn't act as a barrier to innovation and competition. Um, The project innovate, um, and then uh, Chairman Christian Carlo from the CFTC said, uh, the FCA's project innovate is the gold standard for thoughtful regulatory engagement with emerging technological innovation. I don't know why, but I really, this just gives me warm fuzzies. Yeah, I like this. And I think it's worth flagging that it's the first fintech innovation arrangement for the CFTC with a non-US counterpart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe what he's saying about it, it's, it's a gold standard. Um, and, you know, so it focuses on, like, sharing information and kind of insights that come from sandboxes, um, proofs of concept, and facilitating referrals of fintechs interested in entering the others' markets. So that's got to be good, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I think a lot of different government entities are looking to push towards similar goals. So as much as they can kind of learn from what the other is doing to provide mutual benefit, then it's, you know, the better for everyone. It's interesting, though, that the FCA largely look after consumer interests in the United Kingdom and the CFTC are looking after commodities and futures in the United States. I mean, they're, they're two quite diverse um, marketplaces. I think it'd be interesting to see how many companies actually fall within the uh, purview and jurisdiction of both of these entities. But I imagine there's some. Um, so uh, Jeff Bandman, who was at the CFTC when uh, the Lab CFTC was set up, um, often talked about uh, how he looked to the FCS Project Innovate as being kind of something they were looking to, to emulate. So be interesting one to watch. Um, and of course, uh, Project Innovate and the FCA were looking to do a lot more of this. So um, last week's um, episode one, three of fintech insider we actually spoke to the fca um all about how they're trying to do more of these so maybe we'll see more and i imagine if you're a fintech startup and you don't neatly fit into regulations or uh, you can't afford to hire countless consultants to go have a global expansion plan but you do have something that you think is interesting to offer interesting to see regulators engaging in this way edward do you got any thoughts yeah, I think like you, I think this is something we can feel really good about, right? There's there's, there's a bunch of challenges for UK PLC right now, but actually, um, you know, even open banking, right, is now being absolutely emulated around the world. Australia announced last summer that they're going down a, a very similar route with a an uncannily similar blueprint. Um, and so this is a, a great British export. I, I also think, I, I wonder whether there's a degree of a defensive angle here. Um, you look at the kind of the major fintech centers, you know, London and the US kind of teaming up against some kind of an Asian threat. Um, you know, there may be that dimension to it. Which is interesting because on uh, the After Dark show we did uh, last week, we talked about how the VC funding had really kind of dried up in China. It dropped um, from 8 billion to around about 1.6, whereas in the UK it had gone the opposite way. Uh, but the third problem we had in the UK is we weren't getting a lot of A and B rounds. We were getting really deep C, D rounds, which means great. We finally, finally solved that problem that we didn't have any growing tech companies reaching scale. We now have those, but suddenly the supply at the bottom end is missing whilst there's all of this Brexit uncertainty. Um, but your point is well made, Edward, that we continue to be, I think if we have a strategic advantage as a country, it's policy innovation uh, and people looking to learn from that. And that's interesting. All right, next story. Um, Amazon and Bank of America team up perhaps, maybe. Um, So CNBC uh, covered this one, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Gary Fagan. Uh, Amazon's partnered with Bank of America for its lending program. Uh, In a shareholder letter two years ago, the Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says he was looking to team up with banks that could help his company expand its lending program for small businesses that sell on its websites. Amazon indicated in its 2016 annual report, uh, published a year ago, that it received $500 $500 million revolving credit facility from a lender. And uh, the company said in its latest annual report that that facility was raised to $600 million and may f- increase from time to time. Sources have said the lender referenced in its filings that um, it's Bank of America, but they've declined to comment. 
What do we think about this one? Lending to small businesses on your platform as an e-commerce site. I mean, Alibaba have been doing this for some time. Seems like a, a strategy where for a long time people have been saying, will there be an Amazon of banking and will it be Amazon? Seems like they want to partner instead. Yeah. So, okay. So I think there's a couple of things here. So I think um, first and foremost, the program isn't about making money from interest payments. What it's about is to support merchants like selling on Amazon's marketplace, right? Um, and that's, I mean, the, the end goal of that is to boost their sales, really, essentially. Um, I think, you know, I guess partnering with Bank of America allows them to reduce their risk. So, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense there. But, you know, I guess whether or not they're trying to make money on the interest, it's still an example of kind of Amazon eating into revenue streams of more traditional players like we've seen with Amazon Pay. Um, so it probably is something that I guess the big players should be worried about. This is this is a huge opportunity, right? So, so out in the real world, it's still really difficult for, for small businesses to access capital. Um, the banks who have the funds, have the balance sheets and, and the low cost of funds still lack the risk appetite and the systems and processes to accommodate SMEs. Um, we're seeing some you know, great alt lenders like iWalker and Market Invoice doing some really neat things in terms of the way that they're using data from zero amongst other platforms to kind of aid their decisioning. But of course, in terms of scale and brand, um, they're still pretty small. So, so I think actually, uh, as a small business, Amazon probably is a brand that you, you, you'll trust. I think um, whether their motives are, are all about, um, you know, helping small businesses as against just driving their own uh, driving their own sales, I, you know, I think is is um, is probably a little academic actually. I think from from a, a small business perspective, accessing that credit facility um, can be super important, and it's another great. I option. agree. And what I saw um, when I sort of researched this story a little bit was that actually the rates that they charge generally somewhere between eleven and thirteen percent, which actually isn't all that competitive. So you know that the, what they were kind of seeing was that um, early stage startups, where you know they'll do anything to get the credit, will go for that. But then as they grow their business, they'll actually move to another provider. It's not because they've a bad experience it's just because they can access more competitive but if that's growing the amazon ecosystem and uh, they weren't able to do that previously then that suits amazon and it's profitable for everybody involved and i think amazon's strategy appears to be grow amazon's core business um rather than get into banking the big tech players don't seem to want to get into banking because of the regulation side yeah and i think that really speaks to it because a lot of people have been wondering how will the big consumer technology companies um kind of react to all of the new options within financial services Will they actually want to become a bank? Will they want to get the banking license and compete? Um, a lot of the banks have said, like the traditional banks like Barclays, are actually afraid of like Amazon or Facebook or Google going into banking. But I think what's more likely to be the reality is something like this, partnerships, focusing on lending, focusing on payments, not actually looking to be a bank, but offering financial services and partnership. I think if you were to ask um, any incumbent industry that's been threatened in the last couple of decades who they were scared of, it was never the people that you end up being threatened by. So um Blockbuster CEO was more worried about, I think, uh, Apple than he was about Netflix. So it's never the ones you expect. It's uh, your your threats are these small ones, not the big ones. But they understand and know what the big ones are. So I think there's something to be said for that. We actually we think this space is really exciting. Um, if you think about the fact that uh, just this week Lloyd's have said they're putting a, another six billion pounds in small business lending, HSBC have a ten billion pound fund that they announced last year. There's no shortage of recognition of the need, um, and yet out in the real world, as I say, it's still pretty hard. Um, I guess you put into the mix um, the RBS CMA remedies and yeah. you know TSB. Uh, throwing 100 million pounds at this space that small business space for banks is really really hot right now and, SME and so hot right now that was I, a title I of an agree that from it two weeks is ago. but I think that's off the back of it being neglected for so long post 2008 yeah, yeah 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 for sure it really has let's hope we see more all right so um I need to thank our sponsors we wanted to let you know that on the 27th of February, our very own David Breer and Sam Moore will square off in a fintech face-off, joined by some very special guests, including Bo Hartman, Richard Davies, Sarah Kachansky, and Bill Sullivan. It'll be Europe versus the US, facing off in a transatlantic debate to decide who's the best for fintech. It'll be live streamed, hosted by Capgemini and LinkedIn. Don't miss out. You can sign up at faceoff.11fs.com to watch the fight and back either side. That's faceoff.11fs.com. Who's going to win? We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? 
We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. We also wanted to let you know that if you love watching this show live, you like any of our After Darks, we're going to be in Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the broadcast to the arena right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. So that's 1811FS, and you can get 200 euros off the ticket price. Now, on with the show. Before the break, we were discussing a potential partnership that may or may not be happening. This one definitely is. Um, so Gig Economy Startup is backed by BBVA. There's a um, story on Finextra, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Emma Kaonmu, that man again. Um, BBVA-backed digital banking startup gets to gig economy workers. So ASIO, founded last year, is a BBVA-backed digital banking platform targeting the American gig economy. Um, so there are 44 million people in the US that have a side gig. And by some estimates, that's uh, by 2020, that could be 43% of the country's workforce. Um, ASIO argues that this massive group is being overlooked by traditional lenders um, and is stepping in uh, with dedicated business banking services for the gig economy available online with no fees on minimum balances and they are majority owned by bbva which incubated the startup in its silicon valley new digital business fintech lab wow i love this and people just the labs from banks for so long were poo-pooed as not doing anything well um here it is um they're a thing they're available they're live they launched it became real i mean who knows if they'll get customers but what do we think about this as a proposition i mean you talked about small businesses you must see something with zero with gig economy as well yeah, hey, so look, I mean, again, the proportion of the uh, workforce in the UK uh, mirrors that, that I think they're claiming in the US. So uh, there are five and a half million businesses in the UK, three million of those are sole traders, and there's a whole bunch more people who may be employed, but actually, you know, take part in the gig economy. Um, this play looks a lot like Coconut, who are just about to launch over here. And so those guys have, you know, uh, the great team making a lot of noise. Um, but I think, again, we'll see the banks start to focus on this space. Um, I think the needs of uh, of these sole traders and contractors are actually pretty simple. And, and, and I think it can be viable that you're supporting uh, issuing invoices, that you're supporting, you know, some simple uh, accounting, maybe even filing tax in these accounts. Um, but I think it's, again, a space that will get rapidly very, very hot in the UK as the banks go after this. I mean, this, this market segment has just grown massively and there haven't really been propositions to support them other than, well, interestingly, some of the uh, gig economy companies themselves have started offering some of the insurance and some of the financial products and even pensions that wrap around kind of their core offering, which is not dissimilar from what Amazon were doing for their small businesses. Whenever there's an uns, uh, unserved segment and there's a tech giant near it, they just start partnering up to, to kind of offer these things. But it's interesting, the banks haven't really stepped into this space so much. Um, so you mentioned Coconut, you mentioned, I think, this one. Uh, it's going to be interesting to think about what actual jobs need to be done for these people, because they're running their own personal bank account, they've got this business bank account, they're trying to manage money between the two, and then there's they can almost see the money's coming in, but have they paid their tax on it? There's, there's a lot of problems that come up. So, so, hey, look, just I, I think one dimension on this that'll, that'll make this interesting is what happens with making tax digital. So uh, HMRC have certainly socialised that uh, down as low as a £10,000 income, um, you'll need to report as a business uh, if you're a sole trader. And um, today, a lot of those businesses are being run in personal bank accounts, right? And, and it will become increasingly less viable. Uh, if you have to file four times a year and you have to do, do a fifth kind of annual reconciliation of that. Um, and so look, I, I, I think this is a really solid proposition. I, I really agree. I think, um, you know, Simon, to your point, like the, the, the big banks haven't done it. 
their propositions are far too inflexible. And I'm not at all surprised that it's BBVA that has actually done it. Um, they have been like a massive believer in the kind of potential around fintechs. Um, you know, they've purchased Simple, took a massive stake in Atom. And Francisco Gonzalez, their executive chairman, going back to our previous story, Megan, he actually does genuinely believe that sooner or later their main rivals are going to be the big tech firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, their, um, their innovation strategy reflects that. Indeed. Um, Francisco Gonzalez has been thinking about technology for quite some time. He um, when he said on stage when uh, Jason interviewed him for a BBVA event that uh, in 2001, when he took over as chairman, he brought in a load of bankers. And then in 2007, he realized, actually, I don't need bankers, I need technologists. And uh, kind of restructured uh, his management team to be more focused on tech. And uh, Chris Skinner um, always talks about the amount of people in senior management positions uh, in banking who have any diversity of experience generally but also that have any technical background is is really really limited and in, and do we think you're more likely to need technology skills in the future or less likely yeah and, and you know i think they've taken on something like 150 designers because they want designers to sit across every single team um in the bank and, and you know like design thinking and it, it just works like you know they won the um forester's best app 2017 by like the biggest score ever and then a couple of months later that was i think in june or july in september they launched a brand new app Mm -hmm. um you know just don't want to rest on their laurels and yeah it's crazy well i found it interesting when i first moved over to the uk properly and started starling having come from zero what i'd hear from uh, a lot of the people that i used to be in contact with who were accountants or small businesses it's like you think retail banking is bad like business banking for small businesses much less sole traders and when you look at sole traders and the self-employed it's such a growing market and then when you have this legislation that's actually instead of starting with the biggest and going to the smallest it's actually starting to affect them first all of a sudden it's going from bad to worse so, there, so there's so much opportunity um and at starling what we were seeing was a lot of people just to ed's point that were sole traders, um, but they just wanted to actually just use their retail current account for business because they didn't need all of the kind of additional features of a proper business account. And the fees. Yeah. Because yeah, typically exactly. the business account is a current account with fees, your know, personal current account with fees on top. And it's like, yeah. well, why? Yeah, exactly. So it's one of the things actually at Starling. So we're, we've openly said that we're working on next, but building out this business account for SMEs and, you know, sole traders and self-employed, but also with this kind of ecosystem of connections to help with things like making tax digital. But there's so much opportunity in the space. So it's really exciting to see others kind of um, working around it as well. Yeah, good chance to um, a fintech lab run by a bank that did a thing that's going live. I mean, just <laughs> can we just take a moment for that? That's uh, BBVA break a lot of the rules for big banks in that they they get shit done and and, and we're fans of that um, all right so um next story uh wealth simple have had a funding round so this uh, comes from business insider submitted to fintech insider news by bob mclean uh the robo advisor wealth simple has raised 37 million pounds to fuel growth uh the ceo said in a statement uh we, they had an incredible 2017 uh they expanded into their first international market and tripled their number of clients who invest with them and uh they're looking forward to adding more products in their lineup um, and they're looking to get into values-based investing through um, creating a socially responsible investing portfolio and they're actually a Canadian startup um, so they launched in the UK and the US in 2017 they heavily target millennials so 80% of their clients are under 45 and 40% are first-time investors so um, good that they're growing we've seen a few people in this category before though um, seems like there's a need for this sort of thing oh, yeah so the, it, there's there's a there's a point here which i think is key which is like around democratization of what like is a typically complex financial product so i mean you know i i wanted to kind of just jump in when you said that 40 percent are first-time investors i think i i know we're like in the fintech space it's fast moving we see these kinds of numbers all the time that's incredible that's people who would not have invested before that something like well simple was there um i think that democratization point is key you know making it much less prohibitive and much more like accessible to to consumers generally yeah, I think even from the UK government's perspective, they saw that not enough people were saving for retirement. That yeah. Thus, the auto-enrollment pension legislation that went through. So I think it's really great to see the advent of these companies that are looking to make it simple and accessible, wealth simple. One of the things that we really liked about them from like the marketplace perspective is they have the low minimum to join, so the one pound. So just the, the monetary kind of barriers that could be there to start investing are removed. Um, but then also looking to make the user experience awesome and then having the socially responsible element too. So 
I think they're doing a lot of things right, and it's really exciting to see them um, expand. And if you're in the um, asset management or the investments industry more broadly, I mean, socially responsible investing and alternative asset classes are a huge area for investigation. But so is just like making people feel like they can invest, making people feel like they can do this. Like you, you can have this thing, and it's quite easy to use, and we'll teach you more about it, and you'll crawl, walk, run, and you'll grow. Because people just aren't saving. Um, and you know, people into their mid-30s now are, are just not saving and this could be a, a social problem so um, maybe we need more like this yeah I, I think megan's point about the workplace pension i think it's um you know it's actually a huge issue and of course again you come back to that gig economy space actually unless you're employed you don't get the workplace pension right and so um the only way that you can access decent advice in this market historically has been if you have investments of a scale that are interesting to an ifa and, and even then you kind of pay through the nose for that advice right um, so, so I think any any disruption in this market is incredibly welcome, and and I love the term Ross about you know democratizing this, bringing more people into investments and savings is is actually strategically really important for the economy. The interesting thing I always hear though is that these these organisations don't have a large AUM assets under management, so it's almost like the dirty secret is that well all the money's in in the other banks and these things are small, but actually you wind the clock forward, it's like people aren't wealthy when they're young, uh, it's when they inherit money and or they grow their fortune fortune and get older that they get wealthy so um in 20 30 years these organizations might you know be really jockeying for position so the time horizons on the, the wealth industry is interesting um so to hear more about wealth simple um jason actually int- interviewed tony trebell from wealth simple in episode 163 so if you're at your phone and you want to learn more about wealth simple go into your podcast app of choice and look for episode 163 all right we're reaching the silly part of the show um, this uh, this story uh, I quite enjoyed. So uh, the UK Conservative Party may end up using blockchain for activism if one bizarre thought piece is to be believed. Now, this is a bizarre thought piece. It's not put out by the party itself. Um, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Sharon. So this was written by Mike Rouse, who's a West Midlands independent digital consultant with a focus on pushing innovation in political activism. So he created a special type of token with an existing blockchain system, some of you may know Ethereum, and called it Conservative Coin. Let's say somebody turns up to a campaigning session, they could be credited with 0.05 of Conservative Coin from a central pot, which is why do you need a blockchain if you've got a central pot? Um, If they stuff some envelopes, we give them 0.01 Conservative Coins. If they go to the trouble of traveling to a target area, we'll give them... 0.1 0.1 maybe and if the area is a red hot target we can add a premium and make it 0.5 so you could have these invisible coins that make no sense like what is going on here this is the has the world gone mad i don't understand how this is news this sounds like someone had too much time on their hands and just, just i don't know Although, yeah. this, is, this is the funniest of all of the stories. So uh, this, this, this guy uh, talks about how this is not about bribing money-minded Tories who apparently turn up to change the world. Um, and he talks about how the very evening he had the idea, he minted 10 million of these coins and gave them all to himself. It's r- <laughs> rather super. Which is just like every ICO, right? I mean, how, isn't that what every... It's a basic ICO, blueprint. Let's make up some coins. Uh, but uh, the, my favorite um, weird crypto story this week, um, well, we had a whole bunch of them on Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes now. Um, but Steven Seagal endorsed a cryptocurrency, and it's called Bitcoin, but with two eyes. Um, so um, he's a believer in Bitcoin 2Gen. Um, this is the actual statement. So... Hollywood actor Steven Seagal has become a believer in Bitcoin 2Gen. The Hollywood action star will be representing the leading cryptocurrency organization, Bitcoin 2Gen, as a brand ambassador. Right. So the SEC... This story's hard to kill. The SEC has already issued a warning about celebrity crypto endorsements, right? Yeah. And from what I understand, this one is basically based on a pyramid scheme. Yeah, pretty much. But Steven Seagal, like the SEC may be the scary exchange commission, but Steven Seagal, like would you mess with him? 
maybe 20 years ago I wouldn't but now yeah no I just think this whole like celebrity crypto endorsement it Megan, has to Megan's stop. looking blank I suspect you're struggling yeah. to know who this guy even is yeah I don't know who the guy is but like cryptocurrencies in general everyone like oh my god what's happening it's rising it's crashing it's oh what's gonna happen uh, I don't know it feels like a lot of hype to me I'm not getting like wildly excited over these uh, conservative Tory coins so I mean you know I thought he was the guy on the cause light <laughs> advert but apparently he's not <laughs> I, yeah I, yeah maybe endorse Coors Light instead I don't, this has to stop this has to stop because the idea of uh, a new generation of the internet that's decentralized, moving past Amazon Web Services to truly distributing data and being able to be in a position where things are harder to hack, things are more uh, reliable and secure, is a really compelling idea. This, these headlines have absolutely nothing to do with that. I often say that the blockchain space is both sublime and ridiculous, and the sublime's often hard to see because there's so much ridiculous shit going on. Are there any stats on how many ICOs there have been just like this year? feels like everyone's having an ICO. There was, a, just me? There was a report by uh, Ernst & Young that actually looked at um, of the ICOs up to sort of uh, in, in 2017. Um, they kind of gave a breakdown. I think they looked at like the top 400 or something and there was nearly $4.5 billion spent. Um, ne- most of them came from the USA. Most of them were done on Ethereum. It's actually, um, there's some good data in that report. All right, uh, the Arand finally story this week comes from The Express, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Alex S. Sales are booming for a big issue magazine seller who takes contactless cards. So for those of you not in the UK, the big issue is something that's often given to uh, people who are either homeless or underhomed. Uh, and they are given this magazine as a way of generating income. And uh, they sell you this magazine on the street. Um, so big issue seller Robin Fabian brought a contactless card reader to increase his sales after passers-by repeatedly don't have £2.50 in change. This is the flip we've seen as the world's gone cashless. Um, I, what do we think of this one? This is this is my favourite story. Welcome to the future. Yeah. I love it. So apparently, um, the contactless card reader paid for itself on day one, and he reckons he's sold over 200 extra issues since then just for having it. And so the British Legion uh, issued people who sell poppies. So I guess that's the um, our Remembrance Day stuff. I guess it'd be like Veterans Day in the US, right? So um, they've had contactless card readers since November. And I remember seeing that. I went into Canary Wharf and I would I was ready to say, I'm sorry, I don't have any change. I've just got a card. And they shoved the contactless reader under my nose. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Because actually, I do want to donate. I, I'm happy to donate to charity. And actually, if I don't have to go around scratching in pockets for change, because cash just annoys me. I don't know about you. Yeah, you know, this is actually a story about people being pretty disenfranchised, right? If, if you can't access e-payments, if, if you haven't got an address, you won't be able to open a bank account. And so, um, you know, there are charities actually working with homeless people to keep them in touch with their doctors and social services. And, and keeping a bank account is like super important if you're going to stay in mainstream society. Uh, apparently, as a, a sort of a double whammy for some of the people who are adopting the like the iZettle um, uh, point of sale systems, you need an iPhone to power it, right? And when you when you're busy trying to sell the big issue or or, or kind of begging, right? People don't think you should have an iPhone, uh, and so apparently there's been some kind of a reaction where people are questioning whether these people really do need the money when they're there with with a, you know. A, 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 some decent tech gear supporting contactless payments um, that feels like a challenge do you know it'd be great PR for somebody like um, Izettel or any you know PayPal or anybody that does these um, contactless card readers to partner up with some of these charities that do work with uh, people who don't have the incomes to afford the technology they need and stick their logo on those things so that you could actually manage from a PR perspective that specific issue you could say provided by so and so right there in front of it and uh, hopefully we'll see more of this kind of stuff because I, I really enjoyed that story yeah. feels like an opportunity for square because they just opened up in the uk seems yeah. like they would be good for it somebody called jack dorsey if you're listening and you know jack dorsey we've got a marketing idea for him we gave that one away for free um all right uh, on that note that wraps up this week's news show thank you very much to our guests where can people find out more about you edward on ed burks at twitter or at zero.com with an x thank you very much megan yeah um at megan kwood on twitter or just megan at sterlingbank.com uh roska Ross Gerd 11 fscom or Ross Gallagher 07 on Twitter. 
Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at SYTaylor or email me simon at 11fs.com. And as always, if you like what you heard this week and you want to come talk to us, find us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or uh, podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Why not send us some emoji or just a smiley face? Laura appreciates those emails. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us. The phone's right in front of you. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You know you can do it. Alrighty, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. All right, no worries. Um, we'll get started. Uh, yeah, have fun, folks. Thank you. This should always be a giggle, right? <laughs> what? It should always be a giggle. That's a, that's a saying. That's a good motto. Yeah. Ollie looking down nervously at his, his mouth. Do you know what this is? Again, this is the same as Moorgate, and they're ganging up on you because you know them. And I think it's despicable. Thank you.